it's a wonderful thing, you know, as a, as a believer to be able to read God's word and to have the Holy Spirit, as you're reading it, confirming it in your heart. How many of us, you don't have to raise your hand or anything, but, you know, how, how many of us, you've been reading God's word and all of a sudden it's just like the words come off the page at you? And, and, and you feel like, like, why didn't I ever see that before? <laughs> it's always been there. But the Holy Spirit knew you needed it in this moment. It's like the old story, the lady who left one Sunday and walked up to her pastor and just said, you know, said, preacher, thank you so much. And, uh, and, and said, you know, th- th- he just keeps putting new stuff in there all the time. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> But we don't always see it. We read through it and it's God's word and we appreciate it, I trust. But the Holy Spirit knows what we need, when we need it. And he confirms that truth. And that's why as a believer we should come each and every time with that heart that's ready to receive. Ready to hear. I'm so, uh, so grateful that just a few years ago, I guess actually six years ago, you wrote that. <laughs> uh, I noticed the date on that. I'm surprised it was that long ago, but so thankful Pastor Josh wrote that uh, for us. And uh, I think, well, I'll just sing that for the next few weeks. So, <laughs> was there an executive privilege? Notice the date, and it also triggered that, that he's just finishing up seven years of ministry with us. Thank the Lord for that. What a, what a blessing he has been. And, of course, he's added to, to his group now. And uh, so thankful for he and Becca and the kids now. So praise the Lord for his ministry each week to us. Well, we are looking in these weeks, uh, the next, uh, next few, next four, um, in the subject of discipleship. And last week, we, from Scripture, defined what is discipleship. What is it to be a disciple, to, to disciple, a noun, a verb, um, to be discipled. What is it, this thing that we hear so much about within the, the culture of Christianity, uh, of discipleship. And, uh, and, and I said, you know, the reality is that uh, over the years, I think it has gotten um, simplified a great deal, and it's not necessarily a bad thing, except for the fact that I, I fear that we have come to, for many of us in many of our places, where we feel like, oh, okay, so, you know, you, you make a decision for the Lord, we, we rejoice in that, praise the Lord, um, you've accepted him as your Savior. Now, we've got this six-week class where you'll be discipled. And you go in the class and, you know, you, you learn about, you know, baptism and eternal security and church attendance and involvement and service for the Lord. And then you get a little certificate and, and it's like, yes, I've been discipled. I'm good. I'm done. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a great start. There's probably a lot of really important stuff there. But the reality is, and I think this is clearly seen through the New Testament, clearly through the ministry of Jesus, the life of the original 
uh, apostles, 12 apostles, but then the disciples and, and all that was going on in the early church. This is a lifetime pursuit. It is not that we are pursuing salvation. That's, a, that's done. You put your faith in Jesus Christ, he died once. But then growing, maturing in our faith, becoming, continuing to be a good disciple, a student, a follower, and then to be obedient to do what he said and to go and make disciples, that's just a lifelong pursuit. Told you last week, this is kind of a, this is a back to basics type of series. Some of you are, you know, into sports, maybe played sports coming up. And, uh, you know, it, this is like the coach, basketball coach or soccer coach or whatever that every once in a while, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a championship team. I mean, we're just like running it, you know, win after win after win. But every once in a while you show up to practice and you go, uh-oh, because the little cones are out there. <laughs> and it's like, okay, we are going back to basics today. Why? Because our human frailty, just the nature of that, that old man that stills there and still wants to do it his way. Quite frankly, we get lazy. We get lackadaisical. There's a good word for you. We just like, I got this. Most of you know I am all about my Georgia Bulldogs. I was actually over in Ithaca on Friday night, uh, took Lily home, and yes, we are looking forward to just a normal work week. Man, we had fun with her. Man, did we have fun with her. But we were over there, and I actually had a Georgia Bulldog uh, shirt on, and uh, of course we went to get ice cream. And the girl standing in front of me, she had a Georgia Bulldog sweatshirt on in Ithaca, New York. And she's like, nice shirt. It's <laughs> like, go dogs. Anyway, that's all free. We got two national championships. Back to back. Coming up, season starts this Saturday. I am scared to death. Because our schedule on paper looks super, super easy. It's really hard to coach up a national championship team with back-to-back -back championships to go out there and beat up on UT Martin. <laughs> You're like, who? Right. And so many times in our Christian life, we get just like that. I got this. I go to church, I do my Bible reading, I hang out with Christian people, neutral, I got this. And the tragedy is that we think that's real, you know, th that that's okay. There are a lot of applications to the warning that Peter gives to the early church about being sober and being vigilant because your adversary the devil, like a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I think a lot of times we think, oh, well, that's about like, I mean, he's just going to like spring on us and drag us off into some horrible, wicked sin, sin in our lives. He might. He might try to do that. 
Or he might just be really happy for you to just be complacent. And just stay in neutral. It's the same, same danger. And so sometimes we've got to get back to, back to the basics. And like I said, sometimes the basketball coach, he comes out and he's like, okay, I want everybody dribble to the baseline with your right hand, dribble back with your left hand. You know, the star point guard is like, are you kidding me? I know this will blow some of your minds. I coached high school basketball for a while. I should say I was the appointed coach, whatever. I had a whistle. I had this guy, though. He thought he was it. And he was pretty good. He was not as good as he thought he was. He had a ton of potential. But he was that guy. And every once in a while, it was just like, dribble with your right hand. And about halfway down the court, you know, he'd like go behind his back or something. I'd make him start over. Blow the whistle, come back. Dribble down with your right, back with your left. Why? Because it's important to be reminded of the basics. Because we don't got this. <laughs> and it is a challenge. And there are struggles. And there are obstacles. And we need to stay alert. We need, quite frankly, just to stay humble about that. And so if we think, as we sit here together, oh yeah, I was discipled. No. Look, folks, I am being discipled. I am discipling. I have people pouring into my life. I am trying to pour into other people's lives. So it, and that's just not what I do and get paid for. That's part of being part of the family of God. We all need that. I believe, as I stated last week, that we as a church need to be focused on this in this, not only this next season of ministry, but, but and beyond. Because Jesus ordered it. He commanded it. He expects us to do it. And as I reminded us last week, you know, our mission statement that gets boiled down into those three words, deliver, disciple, develop. Disciples not, discipleship is not a third of the mission statement. It's at the heart of it, and it really encompasses all of it. The command is clear from Matthew 28, isn't it? Jesus said, go make disciples. And so we know we're to be actively engaged. It's a divinely ordained plan. If Jesus walked in here today, once we all came back to consciousness, we would, what? what? What do you have to say? You know what I believe he'd say? Go make disciples. I put you here, in this community, at this time, to go make disciples. Jesus didn't just tell us to do it. He also showed us how to do it. And it's an, discipleship is an essential ingredient 
in the spiritual growth plan for your life, for my life, for our lives together. And there's not a substitute. God designed us to grow with and among other Christ followers, other disciples. We do that as we exhort, edify, encourage one another. And so as we think about this, it brings us kind of in this next step in our, in our journey for these weeks. And that is discipleship, last week defined, this week demonstrated by Jesus. And I'll just clue you in, this is today and next week. We're going to break this into two parts. We're going to look at how Jesus did this. Because isn't he the best example? I mean, in everything. What would he do, right? What would Jesus do? How would Jesus make disciples? Well, we've got a pretty clear, comprehensive record of that in the New Testament. We're going to look at some really familiar passages this morning. Like I said, this is, for in a lot of ways, very basic. But it's so important. So this morning we're going to look at the first couple, and then, and then next week we'll look at, at two more uh, aspects of it. And so let's not, you know, let's not th- let this familiarity breed and, or lull us into complacency. And so as we look at this in Matthew chapter 4, I'll invite you to get there. We'll read, like I said, this is a, a familiar account. One of those, you know, Sunday school passages. But there is so much here, just practical Yes, it's a narrative, it's what happened in Jesus' life, it's what, what he said, what happened as a result of that. But just so much practica- practicality in its example of not only did Jesus tell him what to do, but he had showed, before he even told him what to do, he had spent the better part of three years showing them how to do it. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18 says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers... Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee and their their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. He went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee in the Decapolis, that's a region of ten cities, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Jesus invited his disciples into a relationship. We read those verses uh, 18 to 22, almost a little comedic value to it in just the fact that, you know, the narrative, Matthew... No doubt he had heard this story many times from the two sets of brothers over the years that they got well acquainted. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit said, now I want you to write that down, inspired it. 
But I, I just love every little facet of it that it captures of Jesus' routine life. He's out walking one day by the Sea of Galilee. Everybody does that. It's a normal activity. But while doing that, what does the Bible say? He sees two brothers, Peter and Andrew. And he just walks up to them and he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Okay. Off they go. They keep going down a little ways. And here's three guys in a boat. It's obvious. It's a dad and his two sons. And he looks at James and John and says, follow me. And all of a sudden they look at dad and like, we got to go. I mean, can you imagine how all this played out? I don't know what the conversations were. I mean, this is just what's recorded for us. It doesn't look like there was a lot of debate or argument or discussion. It just kind of happened. Jesus here invites these men, these men who become disciples, into a relationship. Little did they know it was into a relationship as students to the preeminent rabbi. But it was so much more than that. The amazing reality is that through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, Jesus continues to invite sinners into a redemptive relationship as disciples. No, he's not physically here anymore, but the Holy Spirit is still doing the same work. And the invitation by Jesus to the disciples was, it was not merely to tag along. No, he invited them with a life-changing purpose in mind. Up to this point, they were fishermen. They were skilled fishermen. From what else we have in, in uh, the Gospels, these guys were, were pretty well off. They knew what they were doing. They had connections. James and John, their family, they obviously had high connections within, you know, if we can call it this, kind of the, the Jewish aristocracy almost. And Jesus walks by one day, invites them into this relationship, and it changes their lives. He says, I'll make you fishers of men. And that's what he's saying to us. We too, when he tells us, go make disciples, we too are to invite people into a discipleship relationship with an eternal purpose in mind. Now, I know we kind of struggle with this and the whole thing of, well, yeah, but I mean, I don't save them. And that, that, no, we don't. But it's, it is how God in his providence, in his sovereignty, has ordained it to be done. To use us, to allow us to make disciples, to be that voice that invites them, that pours into their life. 
Religion isn't about, well, I just go and I punch my card on Sunday and good, I got my, you know, shot for the week. No, it's to change our life. Not only that, to change our eternity. And so Jesus extends here very personal invitations. So that's what we're going to look at here this morning just quickly. Just some examples of how did he do this because, you know, we could go, but I'm not him. But he told us to do it. And he gave to us the Holy Spirit to have the power in us, the Holy Spirit's working in the world around us to do this. He didn't tell us to do something we would never be able to do. So we're going to look at how did he invite, how did he instruct. Next week we're going to look at kind of like the, the next part of it where he entrusts and empowers. But if Jesus demonstrates how to invite, how to instruct, don't you think we can learn from that? And didn't these men learn from that? I mean, we open our Bibles and we read from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are men who were invited and instructed. And they spent the rest of their life inviting and instructing. And here we are still learning from their instruction. Notice some of the invitations that Jesus extended. Of course, we've looked at, at the first one here in Matthew 4. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? We get very, very familiar with them. Not every invitation went so well. <laughs> there were a lot of people. The passage here before us tells us that his fame spread abroad. It talks about the, this region, the capital. That, again, ten Ten cities, ten towns. And people were coming literally from all over. It says from Galilee, Decapolis, from Jerusalem in the south and Judea and even beyond Jordan. People are coming from all over. Intrigued, curious. Who is this guy? What is he saying? What's he doing? In Matthew chapter 8. If you want to just kind of start flipping through, we're just going to walk quickly through, through Matthew. But in Matthew 8, 22, many of you know this episode. There's a scribe. Again, crowds are gathering. That's what it says in verse 18. It says, the scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, there's no record here that either one of these men ultimately followed. The crowd, the excitement, very intriguing. But the reality of it is... Jesus said, you're welcome, but I want you to know up front, I'm not sure where we're sleeping tonight. <laughs> the other one, Lord, I, I want to follow too, but, but first I've got to go. Now, Jesus wasn't being unkind, but he knew the man's heart. He said, look, 
to be a disciple, it's not an easy thing. I would love for you to follow me. It will change your life. But I, I also want to be honest with you. It's hard work. There's a cross to carry. It's got to be your first priority. You see, again, being a disciple, discipling, discipleship, it's not about convenience. It's not about, well, where can I fit it in my schedule? Where does it fall on my list of priorities? When Jesus looks at this man and says, follow me and let the dead go bury their dead, he's just basically telling him, where on the list is this going to be for you? In Matthew chapter 9, here's his, the author's own testimony. It says, Jesus passed on from there, Matthew 9, verse 9. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Matthew goes back through the days, weeks, months, years. I remember that day. Man, I was just sitting there another day collecting taxes. That was rough. Nobody liked me. I was kind of the outcast. Decent living. Wasn't very much fun though. I remember that day Jesus walked by. He just said two words. There's just something in my heart that I, it's like, that's what I'm going to do. Changed his life. How many times did he tell that story through the years? The Holy Spirit said, write it down. And how many times has it been told through the years? In Matthew 19, again, familiar interaction. You see, Jesus is interacting with all kinds of people, all stratuses, all, all the different edges and, and areas and, and, and social landscape. I mean, it's all there. Fishermen, scribes, young man, tax collector. Matthew 19, verse 16, it says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's rattling through the last half of them, right? And the young man said to him, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come Follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Oh. I'll have to think about that. You see, the invitation was so attractive, and all that came with it, it, it looked from a distance like, wow, that would be so cool. What does it really mean? You see, here it is. There's this invitation that, that if you'll accept it, it'll change your life. And also from this record here, we see here's the invitation extended. And the young man makes the decision, I'm not ready for that. And he goes away going, phew, I dodged a bullet. 
No. He goes away sad. Why? Because I believe there's something in the heart of every person. Here's the invitation that is extended. And here's that tension. And he doesn't accept it. And he knows. Ah! I should have responded differently. We had uh, read for us this morning from John 1. The record of Philip and, and Nathaniel. What a, what a great episode that is. When you turn over to John 3, of course, again, you know, John 3, or we immediately go middle of the chapter, John 3, 16. Let's not forget where that conversation, where that statement, that wonderful verse comes from. It's the conversation Jesus is having with a Pharisee, man named Nicodemus, who's in, who is curious, who's wondering about this, this great teacher. And he comes and has this, this conversation at nighttime where nobody else will see him. There is nothing in John 3 that, that tells us that at that point Nicodemus was like, I'm in. He got a lot of information. He's like, I got to think about that. But I believe later on as we see it at the cross and Nicodemus shows up again, I, I believe he does become a follower. He does become a disciple. You see, all of these examples, all of these invitations... They're across the landscape. We look at people, we interact with people in our daily lives, in the workplace, in our families, in our neighborhoods. And we make assumptions about them. Jesus is just inviting them all. What happens? When an invitation is received. Now again, we, we know intellectually, like, wow, what a difference it would make. Yeah, it does. Can we just take a little snapshot here of Philip? Because Philip is so relatable. Again, you know, we got Peter, Andrew, James, John, the big four. Definitely Peter, James, and John. I mean, none of us are like, I'd be like, Peter, I hope not, but probably not, you know. These guys were uniquely gifted and used. Philip, when was the last time you thought about Philip? Unless that's your name. It's a good name, by the way. We know from John 1, and by the way, John's the only one who really gives us much information about him. We know from the, the record that was read for us this morning, he's from the same hometown as Peter and Andrew from Bethsaida. Was he a classmate of them at synagogue I, growing up? I, I don't know. It's likely he's from a Hellenist family because Philip is a Greek name. That's not a typical Jewish name. The Hellenists were Jewish people who had adopted the Greek customs into their daily life. And that's interesting. Because when Jesus calls him, he, he responds, of course, in a very positive manner. And he immediately goes and finds Nathaniel, right? And I love that, that conversation. He's like, we found him. We found the one that, that, again, scriptures, synagogue, all the lessons with, you know, Peter and Andrew and whoever else, the, the young boys in town. His mind goes racing back to all the education, all the information. And when he meets Jesus, he's like, that's him. And he goes and tells Nathaniel, Nathaniel and Nathaniel's like, really? Where would you say it was from? 
And Philip doesn't argue with him. Philip doesn't get offended. Nathaniel goes, can any good thing? What's he say? Come and see. Come see for yourself. Why don't we extend invitations like Jesus? Because they might argue with me. Because they might be like, why would I want to go there? What difference does it make? We're not into a debate. Come and see. Come and see. You go over to John 12, you see Philip again. Like I said, we don't see a lot of him. But what we see is, is very interesting. In John 12, this is very near the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're in verse 20 of John 12. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was of Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, then we get into what the answer was from Jesus. We're all, all about that, and, and obviously we don't, are not dismissive of anything Jesus ever said. But I want us to look at what is this, what is this telling us? Here is this guy, Philip. Grows up, yes, he's a Jewish man, but he grows up in a Hellenist family. He understands the Greek culture. He understands, as, as it were, the secular culture, right? Jesus' ministry has gone on now for the better part of three years. Attention and everything, and now he's coming up. Of course, they you know, haven't dawned on them yet. This is right towards the end of it. And crowds are gathering, and there are these Greek people that have heard about it, and they're really interested, and they would love to get some time with Jesus. They would love to hear more about it. Who do they go to? Philip. Because they are asking around, and they're like, hey. And they're like, yeah, that, those, that group over there, that's kind of his, his guys. Oh, yeah, who are they? Oh, there's Peter, there's Andrew, there's James, there's John. You know, they're going through the list. All of a sudden, they go, yeah, the one over there in the back, that guy's name's Philip. And they're like, what's his name? Philip. Bing. That's a Greek name. We can relate to him. They sought Philip out. I believe because of his name. In the context of how it's put, it's like they, they're like, that's a guy we can relate to. Not so sure about this Peter guy or this John guy. Maybe he's one of us. And it begs the question, what life experiences has God allowed to come into your life, allowed for you, so that you can make, be better at making disciples? What are your life experiences? Where has God put you? What is your giftedness? That you can have conversations with people that I could never have that conversation with them. But you've got the relationship. You've got something in your background that kind of clicks with it, with them. John MacArthur says, Philip not only had a seeking heart, but he also had the heart of a personal evangelist. We only see him a few times. And he had struggles. Like I said, he's really, really relatable. And the whole thing about the feeding of the 5,000, he's the guy who's kind of like the bean counter. And, and he's the guy who pipes up and goes, do you know how much that's going to cost? I mean, read it. Go back and read it. That's him. But we also see him bringing people to Jesus. 
church tradition records he's stoned in the region of Phrygia about eight years after James's martyr. He took up his cross, literally. There were, as I said, invitations that were rejected because Jesus never forced anyone to be his disciple. The rich young ruler, Nicodemus at first, those who left, we referenced those in John 6. You know, every time we talk of those who turn down the invitation, it's always with sadness. But those who did follow him were changed forever. Do you remember what, what Jeremy read for us a few minutes ago about that whole interaction with Jesus and Nathaniel? Jesus says, you're going to see things. I mean, can we just say it like Jesus, you're going to see things that going to blow your mind. You thought that was amazing? You have no idea what you're going to see. Can I tell you? If you accept the invitation by Jesus to be a disciple, you're going to see things and learn things you never thought possible. I'm not talking about, you know, spooky. No, just the working of God. The reality of Scripture just coming alive. The opportunities to have conversations, to see the Holy Spirit change lives. Only God can do that and he does it through his disciples. And he says, go make disciples. Many of you know that old gospel song. Camp song. Teen rally song, I have decided to follow Jesus. Super simple, pretty powerful when you think about it. The story behind that is written, the words are attributed to a man named Sundar Singh. He was an Indian evangelist, East Indian evangelist. See, in 1904, 1905, 1906, there was a Welsh revival. As a part, as a result of the Welsh revival up in England, missionaries left England by the scores and spread out across the globe. Many of them, several of them, ended up in northeast India in a region known as the Asa region. It was not a region friendly to the gospel. In fact, it was quite hostile. And there wasn't a lot of fruit immediately. But in this one village, the story is told that there was one man who ends up accepting Jesus Christ as his savior as a result of that, his wife gets saved and his two sons accept Christ as their savior. This incredibly angered the chief of that village. He gets, you know, the crowd together. They come to the house. Basically, they drag him out. And under penalty of death, they say, either you, you get rid of this Christian thing or it's going to cost you. And, it, you know, the story says it goes back and forth. And under penalty of death. The story is told that the man just looks humbly and he said, I have decided to follow Jesus. And those were likely his last words he ever uttered. And he and his wife and his two sons were killed for their faith. That story begins to get told and ultimately Sundar Singh takes that story and that testimony and he writes what we sing today, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. 
no turning back. Though no one join me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. That's what it is to be a disciple. That's the invitation. Those who accepted the invitation, my, they were given a seat in the classroom of a lifetime. They were instructed by Jesus. Have you ever had that opportunity maybe to, to be at a, maybe a classroom for a, like a semester or for a year or, or maybe at a, it's just a, a workshop or, you know, a conference and you just leave and you're like, oh my word, I could listen to that person all the time. That's what they had. The invitation, by responding to it, they're instructed by Jesus and we look back very quickly. We look back in Matthew 4, and verses 23 through 25 give us a glimpse at what that instruction was like. It says, Jesus goes about all throughout Galilee, teaching, proclaiming, or preaching, and healing. It is the perfect ministry. Those, Those two especially, the teaching, the preaching... That was teaching, it's the Greek word didasko, it just, it's literally just to explain, to give information, to help them to understand it. The proclaiming or the preaching, that's keruso, that is to herald, to proclaim the gospel message. And they had a front row seat for the months and a and, and couple years to come, day after day after day. And Jesus spent countless hours instructing his disciples. He taught them by word, he taught them by deed, he taught them when they were eager to learn. He taught them when they were inattentive, he taught them when they were resistant. He spent himself pouring into the lives of the twelve as well as some others. Think about Mary and Martha and Lazarus. These guys weren't always like every day showing up to class, you know, Rago, what are we going to learn today? Some days were like that. Other days, they were like, you know, counting the ceiling tiles. Other days, they were fighting among themselves. Other days, they were like, I am really tired of this. It's all in the scripture for us. Luke 11. They come to him one day. They, they watch him. I, I love it. We won't take the time to get there, but... Read it, Luke 11. They're watching. Remember I said he instructed them in word and in deed. Luke 11, they're watching him pray. Think about that. Here's the 12, right? They wake up in the morning, you know, they're getting themselves together and, hmm, where did he go? They walk outside and maybe he's over there underneath the tree, Jesus is, and he's just over there praying and they're just watching him. Imagine what it was like to watch Jesus pray. Listen to him. It it so impacted them that they come over to him after a little while and they said, Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Just like John taught his disciples. Jesus like, yeah, sit down, fellas. See, they came, they were ready, they were eager. There are going to be things in your life. You you read through scripture and you're like, wow. And through the Holy Spirit, you say, I want to learn more about that. Okay. There were days when they weren't real attentive. They were kind of distracted. You know, they're like junior high boys. 
They're just running around. Not real interested in that. Remember in John 4? Jesus is on his way and he said, I got to go first. I get, we got to go through Samaria. Not what they would normally do. But the Bible says he, they go through Samaria. They come to the village of Sychar where Jacob's well is. And Jesus sits down there next to the well. And the Bible says very clearly, read it in John 4. It's about the sixth hour. That's noon. And it goes on and yes, the lady comes out. Remember the woman at the well? They're having a conversation. And then John puts in there. He tells on himself because the Holy Spirit told him he had to. And John says, we weren't there because we had all gone into town to get lunch. And we come back out, and Jesus is sitting there at the well, and he's talking to this woman, and it's obvious what she is. And we're listening, again, just like they were watching him pray. They're standing off to the side going, you know, did you see what's going on here? She leaves, and they come over. Jesus, what are you doing? Oh, by the way, hey, um, hey, uh, you know, Bartholomew, you got this lunch? Yeah. And Jesus is like, I'm good, fellas. And like, who fed you? You see, they, they were distracted. They weren't interested in reaching these people. They're Samaritans. Where's lunch? Another reason we know they were probably Baptists, bless their hearts. They're more interested in their own stuff, their own needs. Then there were days when they they're just rude. They were resistant. They weren't interested in being taught. Again, with some people in Samaria, with a village in Samaria in Luke 9, they kind of were treated not real hospitable. James and John, Lord, can we call down thunder and lightning on them? <laughs> Jesus is like, you fellas, you've got so much to learn. Jesus was always looking for the teachable moments. Whether they were eager to learn, whether they were inattentive, whether they were just resistant to it, he's always looking, how can I teach them? You see, that's how we are to be. We look at people in our lives, how can we bring the truths of Scripture to bear into their life, into conversation? It's not always going to be, you got 45 minutes? No, it may be 45 seconds. But how can you bring Scripture to bear into the life? That's, that's discipleship, that's just planting that seed, that's just watering that seed. They don't want to listen. They didn't want to listen, Jesus taught them anyway. We could go through the list. I mean, he, he was so effective. I mean, really basic techniques. There were recurring themes that he would address. There was relatability. Used the parables and, you know, things about shepherds and the vineyards and stuff like that, right? I mean, you look down through it. Right, right in after our text, of course, is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We went last year through the Sermon on the Mount. You, you look at it, and it says in verse 2 of Matthew 5, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And my, what did he teach them in the next several minutes, right? And then we get to at the end, chapter 7, verses 28, and said, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
So you see, this brings us all down to just, just this simply. The, this challenge that, that we have before us, this, this idea, this concept, this commandment of discipleship. Who can you invite into a disciple-making or disciple-maturing relationship? Because Jesus said, go make disciples. If you are one, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you say, I'm a disciple, okay, well then, who have you invited into a disciple-making whether either sharing the gospel with them or helping them grow in their faith. Who do you know? Your world, like Philip. Who do you know who's an unbeliever? Make a disciple. Share the gospel with them. Who's a new believer? Help them grow in their faith. Who's a mature believer that you can go to and say, hey, I could really use your life experience, your maturity. And be discipled by them. If we're going to be a discipling church, that's what it's all about. It's not just about handing out the tracts with the Romans road. That's a great start. But it's also about coming alongside people. How can I mean it's not about, you know, oh, I'm so good, I've got it figured out. No, because you know, on this day, I'm discipling him and helping him grow in his faith. And then on the next day, I'm over here with this guy going, Hey, can you help me with this? One of the clear directives, as well as example in the New Testament, is that for there to be intergenerational discipleship happening. I know we all like to be around the people that we're comfortable with, and that's great. There's a place for that. But intergenerational, so important. Whether it is, I'm talking spiritually intergenerational, or even physically. I mean, you know, Timothy and Titus, Paul, when he writes to them, instructs both of them about the older and the younger. And I think there are two applications, older spiritually or physically to the younger spiritually or physically. Renee and I were both blessed. We grew up and were able to grow up in, in Christian homes and, you know, church and all that kind of stuff. But we would both tell you, and we probably have some of the same names on our list and some of them are different. But we could both tell you. The people God brought into our lives who were older than us as we were kids, as we were young Marys, as we were new parents. And they poured into us and helped us navigate those various seasons of life. Today, one of my mentors is retiring. He was my high school principal, Randy Hurst. Boy, the story he's got on me, he knows where the skeletons are. Whew. But boy, the, the time he spent with me in high school, he was my ninth grade algebra teacher, became my high school principal, and I have stayed close to him through all of these years, and we've been able to serve together, and, and it's just, today he's retired. He's not quitting on ministry. I know that much about Mr. Hurst. But my goodness, the things he taught me. I remember one day my dad told me, he, he took me aside and, you know, my, my dad was in ministry for over 50 years. And, but dad told me something. He said, Jeremy, he said, let me just tell you something. He said, I am so grateful 
for the men that God brought into your life and your brother's life to teach you things that you couldn't learn from me. I've never forgotten that. Quite frankly, I have said the same thing now to my two sons. Men that God has brought into their lives to teach them things that they wouldn't learn from me. That's discipleship. That's what God has called us to. There are all kinds of resources. We've got them here if you're like, I don't, okay, great, Pastor, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Where do I start? We've got material. Obviously, this is where you start. I mean, literally, you could just say to somebody, would you like to read the Bible with me? Start at the book of John. Great place to start. Or there, there's other things. There, you know, we've got the materials for the exchange. It's a gospel Bible study or conversations with Jesus or, or whatever else. That's why we're starting the growth groups on September 20th. It's all about this. So the question just simply is, will you go make disciples? Not because it's a new program and we're just starting it in a couple weeks. No. Because it's an old program, about 2,000 years now. And Jesus said, go do it. And then he showed us how. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word, the truth of it, the power of it. Father, help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. We pray these things in your name.